0: As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to be starting a new eight-week series today in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to start today with a quote from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who said the following, No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. As I mentioned the word theology, the, the study of God, or more specifically in the, in the Christian sense of the word, the study of the nature of the persons and the work of the triune God of the Bible, what comes to your mind when you think of this phrase, theology? Theology. I think for most Christians, the the obvious go-to is straight to God the Father, or perhaps the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not perhaps as readily to the third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit. So let me start off this morning by asking you to, to consider what comes to mind when you think about the Holy Spirit. As I pause and I ask you to think about the person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, what comes to mind? I want you to be honest with yourself this morning as you try and identify on a personal and emotional level your thoughts regarding the Holy Spirit. Perhaps these are some of the thoughts that come to your mind this morning. I don't really know much about the Holy Spirit, so I don't really worry myself too much with this subject. Well, the Holy Spirit has got something to do with with speaking in tongues and uh, people falling over backwards on the floor in hysterical laughter. I've heard people talking about receiving the anointing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, it all seems a little strange to me. The Holy Spirit, I tell you, is the key to living a supernatural life of abundance without any sickness or heartache or poverty. The Holy Spirit has something to do with prophecy and revelation from God, maybe even through dreams and visions. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, I think, but I'm not really sure what that means. Well, you know what? I have Jesus in my life, so I don't really need anything else. Do I? I've heard that if you sin against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. So I'd rather avoid the whole topic altogether. I was told that I would receive the Holy Spirit when I became a Christian. But I never felt anything supernatural happening to me So I'm not sure if I actually did receive the Holy Spirit. So does that mean maybe that I'm not a Christian? I think the church down the road, I think they believe in him, but I'm not really sure what role he plays in our church. You know, my charismatic and my Pentecostal friends, they talk about him all the time, but I'm really not sure if I understand or can relate. I could go on, but I hope this, this list of responses might have triggered a connection to, to your own questions, to your own doubts, or perhaps misunderstanding and confusion regarding the Holy Spirit this morning. And the reason I wanted to start like this is to help highlight the general misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit in conservative evangelical Christianity, let alone the even greater confusion and sometimes utter chaos which exists around the person of the Holy Spirit under the wider umbrella of Christianity around the world today. And the reality is this, that for most Christians, our views and and beliefs about the Holy Spirit are most often formed from exposure to Christian television and YouTube. Or perhaps from discussions and and experiences that we might have had with with various elements of the so-called charismatic movement. The reality, however, is that whether you've grown up in a conservative church or a charismatic church, your thinking on the Holy Spirit is most likely informed by what you have seen and heard or or not seen and not heard about the Holy Spirit in the contemporary church circles and not primarily informed by what the Word of God actually teaches about the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, says this. From my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes, forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I am willing to bet there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe that they can. If I was Satan, my ultimate goal, and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. The degree to which this has happened is directly connected to the dissatisfaction most of us feel with and in the church. Without the Holy Spirit, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different and the world cannot help but take notice. The church becomes irrelevant when it becomes a purely human creation. End quote. And then Chan goes on uh, in his book to describe the four possible states in which professing Christians find themselves regarding the Holy Spirit. Number one, there are those who boast about the power of the Spirit in their lives, and yet when you look closely, there is very little evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, according to Galatians 5. Secondly, there are those who talk about the Holy Spirit in theological or academic terminology and ways, but you can see that they have no personal experience of Him. Then thirdly, there are those who mostly ignore the Spirit and live without any intimate connection to Him, And then in the fourth place, there are those who seldom even mention the Spirit, and yet whose lives are a powerful display of the Spirit's presence and activity. So which category best describes you this morning? If it is not the last one, that you are a person whose life is a powerful display of the Spirit's presence and and activity then you along with me are in need of this series in the person and work of the Holy Spirit so that we can make sure that we are becoming the people that God intends us to be. People who are not just Christian in name and yet so much like the world around us, but people who truly are transformed by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to live lives which bring glory to God. And so in the weeks ahead, we are going to be looking very specifically and practically at the work of the Holy Spirit. His work in our lives as believers and his work in our midst as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be considering various aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, like his his work in salvation, his work in sanctification, making us holy, perseverance, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to consider His work in revelation and prophecy and guidance. We're going to consider His work in the church as we consider the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to the church. And we're also going to consider His work in revival. But before we can and should consider anything about the the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to start off today in the right place, which is to consider the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And my two main points this morning are quite simple, rather straightforward, but nevertheless extremely important. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. And number two, the Holy Spirit is God. So let's start with what may be obvious, but which also is so often not believed by so many people who call themselves Christians. And that is that the Holy Spirit is a person. And we need to start here by confronting our own preconceived ideas and really ask ourselves if we understand and believe this first statement. Because if we don't, it will drastically affect our view of God and how we live in relation to Him. As God the Father is a person, as God the Son is a person, so too in exactly the same way and in the fullest sense possible, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, this is directly in contrast with what many people, many Christians, have subtly been led to believe. That the Holy Spirit is, is some kind of supernatural force or spiritual influence. For example, just like a heater in winter warms the room, so the Spirit is the influence of God's heat in our lives. We feel the warmth. We feel the fire of God's influence in our lives or perhaps as the wind blows we may see its gentle effect on the leaves of the trees or we may see its powerful effect as buildings come tumbling down so the spirit is to believe it is believed to be the force of god in the world sometimes a gentle force sometimes a powerful force to accomplish god's purposes similarly we might think of the Holy Spirit in terms of the the worldwide web of spiritual connectivity, a kind of internet of spirituality. He's behind the scenes. He's the means of connecting us to God, but we cannot really understand it or explain it, but somehow he provides the connection mechanism between humans and God. Now, I'm not saying that these things... Which the Holy Spirit accomplishes are not true. But before the Holy Spirit is heat, before he is influence, before he is power or spiritual connectivity or revelation, he is first and foremost a person. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine your child gets to school and the teacher asks, Johnny, who brought you to school today? To which Johnny answers, the driver. Oh, says the teacher, and, and who made your breakfast and packed your lunch this morning? To which he answers, the chef. I see, and, and tell me, Johnny, who paid your school fees this month? To which he answers, the employee. Oh, I see, and I, I notice you've scraped your knee. It's, it's all bandaged up. Who did that for you? To which Johnny replies, the nurse. Wouldn't you, as a parent, feel rather hurt by such answers? I mean, they were all true to some degree. He was driven to school by a driver, his food was cooked by a chef, his needs were provided for by an employee, and his wounds were dressed by a nurse. But those things were all done by you, a person, Johnny's mom or dad. Now, in exactly the same way, I think we as Christians often are guilty of of speaking and thinking about the Holy Spirit in terms of what he does, his work, and not in terms of who he is as a person. And in doing so, we grieve the Spirit of God, who is so much more than an impersonal force or, or influence or guide, but who is firstly a person. So let's spend some time this morning considering a number of of biblical passages, biblical evidence of the person of the Holy Spirit. And, And in the first place, I want us to see that the Bible always refers to the Holy Spirit in terms of personal pronouns. I, me, he, him. Never do we find the Holy Spirit being referred to as an impersonal it. He's always referred to in terms of a person. Let's look at a few verses. John 15 verse 26. Jesus says, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Again, in John 16, we see the pronouns he and him being used eight times. Let me show you this in verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So not only do we see Jesus himself clearly referring to the Holy Spirit as a unique person of the Godhead but we also see that the Holy Spirit himself identifies himself as a person. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, we read, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So that's the first point. Secondly, we see that the scriptures ascribe personal traits to the Holy Spirit. For example, we won't look at all of these, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, we find Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, we are told that we can quench or we can oppose the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, verse 30, tells us that the Holy Spirit loves us 2 Corinthians 13 verse 13 tells us that we are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We'll explore some of these verses in more detail in future weeks when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. But for now, they are sufficient to confirm our point that the Holy Spirit is spoken of very clearly and personally and intimately as a person with personal traits. Thirdly, we see that the Bible also ascribes personal tasks to the Holy Spirit. Most clearly, we see this in the function of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, to teach and to guide them into all truth. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 14 verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 16 verse 13, the, the, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truths. He will not speak on His own. Whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Then another personal task which belongs to the Holy Spirit, is found in Romans chapter 8, where we are told that the Holy Spirit prays to God for us as believers. He intercedes on our behalf. Romans 8 verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How different this is to the idea of a, of a kind of Tibetan prayer wheel or, or the Catholic rosary, where all praying to God is a kind of mechanical, disconnected kind of activity, where we simply go through the motions of, of repetitive chants. No, we are told here that the Holy Spirit himself, a person, he helps us in our weakness by interceding for us in prayer with groanings that are too deep for words. So as we think of these various personal aspects of the Holy Spirit, we come to consider then the name which the New Testament gives For the Holy Spirit, that of the parakletos in Greek, or sometimes referred to as the paraclete. Let's consider at this point, John chapter 16, verse 7. Please look in your Bibles at John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, there's that word, the, the parakletos will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here is Jesus, second person of the triune God, in the flesh, on earth. And he says to his disciples, it is for your good. It is for your benefit. It is it's for your advantage that I go away so that the helper, the paraclete, can come to you. What an incredible verse. Let's let's just think about it for a few minutes here. Can you imagine having Jesus with you every moment of the day? Let's try and picture that. When you wake up in the morning, Jesus is sitting beside your bed, ready to greet you and to lead you into the day. And then as you go into the day and you face that difficult person at school or that difficult employer in the workplace, The God who made the universe, who who spoke things into existence, is standing right beside you to tell you exactly how you should respond to that person. Then, when you come home and you get into an argument with your spouse or your children, before you open your mouth to say those hurtful things which you will later regret, Jesus is right there to mediate a relationship of peace and restoration. The phone rings and you get that bad news, that dreaded news about a loved one or, or some personal tragedy or a decision taken at work to, to retrench you. And Jesus is right there next to you, putting his arm around you, assuring you that he's got it all covered and he will be with you as you take each step through this difficult time. What about those times of the day when temptation arises? To go somewhere or to do something or to desire something which you know is is sinful. It's, It's only going to end up hurting you. And Jesus is right there showing you what the right thing is to do and pointing you to the way of escape. Imagine what it would be like if whenever you needed wisdom, whenever you needed direction, whenever you needed comfort, whenever you needed strength to cope, Jesus was right there beside you to supply your every need. Well, to some degree, that is what it must have been like for those twelve disciples of Jesus. For three years they lived together with Jesus. They traveled together. They ministered together. They ate meals together. They walked and talked on the road together. And Jesus was always there. Right beside them. Even in the boat when, when the storm picked up and, and threatened to sink them. Jesus was there to calm the storm. And to calm their hearts. Now. Can you imagine that after three years of constant, direct, personal, relational interaction with Jesus, he says to his disciples, I have to go back to the Father and where I'm going, you cannot come. I mean, even on a purely human level, We can understand something of this shock if a close friend or or spouse or parent suddenly dies or, or moves away. They leave this massive void in our lives. But can you imagine for these disciples after spending every day for three years with God in the flesh, the perfect human being, perfect in wisdom and love and grace and truth and joy and peace and kindness and patience. After three intense years of doing everyday life together, Jesus says, it won't be long and I'm gone. What a shock it must have been and would have been if that is all that Jesus said. But he didn't. He went on in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Did you hear what Jesus said? It is to your advantage It is better for you, says Jesus, that I leave. Why? How on earth? So that I can send you the paraclete. What kind of comfort would it be? What kind of good or advantage would it be to us if Jesus, God in the flesh, said to his disciples, I'm going, but don't worry, I'll send the force to be with you i'm going but don't worry i'll send you your daily food i'm going but don't worry i'll i'll send you guidance in hidden mysterious signs along the way you see no thing from god can be to our advantage as a replacement for god himself it's ridiculous The only possible way for the departure of the person of Jesus from the earth to be to our advantage was if he was replaced by the person more suited to our daily needs. To be to us everything and more than Jesus was in the flesh. And that, says Jesus, is exactly what he was going to do. I'm going to send you, he says, the person of the Holy Spirit. He will come in my place as your paraclete, as your helper. This word paraclete literally means the one who is called alongside. It was used primarily in a legal sense to refer to an advocate who would come and stand alongside you in a court of law as a witness to defend your case before the judge. But the word is is far broader than that. It, It means helper. It means someone who comes alongside you no matter what you are facing to help, to support, to comfort, to encourage, to direct, and to empower us. And so the reality of what Jesus says in John 16 verse 7 is this. As God who took on humanity... I can only be in, in one place at a time. I can only interact with one of you at a time. And so it is to your advantage that I go because I will send you all the paraclete, the third person of the triune Godhead. And he will be to all of you, to all who will believe after you, what I have been to you in the flesh. J.C. Ryle says, There is undeniably much that is deep and mysterious about the contents of this verse. We can only speak with reverence on the matter it unfolds. But one thing is very clear. The universal presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is better than the visible bodily presence of Christ with the church. Christ's body could only be in one place, The Holy Spirit can be everywhere at one and the same time. Whatever the disciples may think, it was far better for Christ to go up to heaven and sit at God's right hand as their priest and send down the Holy Spirit to be with the church until he comes again than for Christ to tarry with them as he had done. It's far better for the souls of men that Christ should finish his work, go up to heaven, take up his office in the Holy of Holies, and send down the Holy Spirit on the church and the world. God in the flesh left this earth and in his place sent us God, the Holy Spirit, as our paraclete, as our helper. So this leads me on then uh, to the second point this morning, which is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is firstly a person, but in the second place, the Holy Spirit is God. We've seen that there would be no advantage for God in the person of Jesus to leave us unless he who was sent in his place was any less than God. And so we see that the scripture confirms not only that the Holy Spirit is a person, but that he is also God. And we see this most simply in Acts chapter 5 verse 3 and 4. That account of Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of land and and then kept some of the proceeds for themselves and, and then pretended that they gave the full price of the land to the church. And Peter says to Ananias, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3? And then immediately in verse 4, he says, you've not lied to man, but to God. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, Paul says that we are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says that we are the temple of the living God. And so it's clear from the scriptures that the apostles, now remember these were Jews, who knew for certain one truth from the Old Testament, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Those same Jewish men came to believe and see and understand that Jesus himself was God in the flesh, and that the Holy Spirit too is God himself. One God, no doubts there, in three persons the great mystery of the Trinity. But there is more biblical evidence to confirm to us that the Holy Spirit is God. We, we see this in the source of biblical revelation. In the Old Testament, it was clear that, that when God spoke to individuals, that when God spoke through the prophets, it was the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, Speaking. The one God of Israel. But when we come to the New Testament, we find the apostles have got no problem declaring that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke. For example, in Acts 28 verse 25, Paul quotes the words of Yahweh, the words of the Lord to Isaiah. But he says that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to the Israelites through Isaiah. Again, in, in Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says that all Old Testament prophecy comes to us by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit speaks, God speaks. But then in addition to that, we also see in the scriptures that the unique, perfect attributes of God are found to be the attributes of the Holy Spirit as well. For example, the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows all things. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of a person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit of God knows the mind of God. He is omniscient. He is all knowing. But the Holy Spirit is also omnipresent. One of the attributes of God is that he is everywhere. And so If the Holy Spirit is God, then he must also be everywhere. And look at what we find in Psalm 139 verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Holy Spirit and the presence of God is one and the same. The Holy Spirit is also revealed to us as the Creator. Now we know that the ability to create something out of nothing and to give life to, to the dead is an, is an absolute crucial understanding and definition of who God is. He is the Almighty Creator. But the Scripture says reveals to us that just as God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, so we are told in John 1 verse 3 that Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos, was the Creator. Now we see in other portions of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the Creator. Psalm 104 verse 30, When you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Job 33 verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty, that Hebrew word Ruach, Spirit of God gives me life. And then something that we consider particularly on on Christmas Day uh, is, is that the Spirit, it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who brought into being the human person of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. Luke one thirty five, And the angel answered Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And so too in the lives of everyone who believes, we see the ultimate miracle of the recreation in bringing About the new birth and bringing life out of spiritual dead hearts in this act of regeneration and resurrection. Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And finally then this morning we see that the Spirit is God because He is holy. Now the word holy in the Bible has has two distinct meanings. Firstly, it refers to the the total otherness of God, a a unique attribute of, of God because everything else in the world has been created by Him. He is totally other from all that He has created. And then there's a second meaning to the word holy, which refers to items or or people which have been set apart for God, dedicated to God, to His service. So when we speak about Christians being holy or living holy lives, which we'll look at uh, in future, we are speaking about it in the second sense, that, that we have been separated unto God. We've been set apart for God's service. But when we look at the Holy Spirit... We see that he is holy in the sense that he is God. He is altogether other. He is not like us. He is the spirit of holiness, Romans 1 verse 4 says. So it should not surprise us. In Jesus' final words to His disciples just before He ascended, as He gave them the Great Commission, He says to His disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we conclude this morning, we've We've considered two fairly simple, straightforward truths about the Holy Spirit. And and if you've been raised in church or you've been raised in a Christian family, this may all be old news to you. But I do fear that for many of us, even perhaps for most of us, myself included, we have not really given these two simple truths enough consideration and meditation. The Holy Spirit is a person And the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus said, I need to return to the Father so that the promised Holy Spirit may come and live with you, may come and live in you forever. You see, the understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not about religion. It's not about doing certain things and and not doing other things. Christianity at its core is about a personal living relationship with the sovereign creator God of the universe. That relationship with God is one which has been accomplished by Jesus Christ through His life and death and resurrection, and one which is bound up in the person of the Holy Spirit, applying what Jesus has accomplished to us as individuals. If I said to you, in order for you to enter into a relationship with God, you need to do the following things. You need to travel on a long journey to such and such a place in Israel. And there you must look for a man called Jesus. And if you find him, and you can manage to get into a relationship with him, he will then reveal God to you, and through him, you will be able to get to know God. Now that sounds reasonable. It's even quite biblical. And it was actually possible for about three years Uh, Around 30 AD. Well that Jesus. Who is the son of the father. That Jesus says to us. It is to your advantage that I go away. To your advantage that I leave. The earth. So that I can send you. The helper. The comforter. The advocate. In my place. And he will lead you into all truth. The truth about God, the truth about yourself, the truth about the way of salvation, the truth about living your life in a relationship with this holy God. He will lead you into all truth. So let's hear afresh this morning then the words of Jesus. Let's make it our commitment this morning to begin to realign our thinking regarding the Holy Spirit. To confess our sin where where we have forgotten Him or or neglected Him or, or grieved Him, quenched Him. To seek to grow in our relationship with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, Jesus said, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, Because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, says Jesus, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, says Jesus. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine. What the Father has given to me, he will take and he will declare it to you. Oh, let us thank God. Not only for the person And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished salvation for us. We, we praise Him so often. We, we sing so often of Him. That's right and proper. But let us no less thank and worship God this morning for the person of the Holy Spirit, our helper, our comforter, our advocate who not only applies the saving work of Jesus Christ to us, but lives in us to be to every one of us, everything we need to be the people that God intends us to be individually and to be the church that Jesus Christ has purposed us to be in Johannesburg in 2020. To be this supernatural light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the world cannot help but to take notice. May the Lord help us as we think rightly and as we restore our relationship to God by restoring our understanding and our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, we come before you this morning because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We have access into your presence because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account. He's, he paid the price for our sins on the cross. And, and so that gives us access into your presence. But Lord, all of that would be futile if we remain dead in our sins. And so we want to thank you today for the person of the Holy Spirit who pursued us who made us alive, who applied the work of Christ to our hearts as we trusted in Jesus and who right now is interceding for us with groans too deep for words. What a privileged people we are to have a Father who chose us, to have a Son who accomplished salvation for us and to have the Holy Spirit Who not only applies that salvation to us, but daily equips us, dwells within us, teaches us, guides us, directs us. And we look forward to exploring all that the Holy Spirit is to us as your people in the weeks to come. Holy Spirit, we want to ask that you will forgive us for having neglected you, for having grieved you, for having quenched you in our lives. Oh, won't you restore us to our Heavenly Father today. Won't you cause that fire that once burned so brightly to be rekindled? Won't you re-sensitize our consciences which have been seared and hardened? Won't you cause us to appreciate you more, appreciate Christ more, appreciate our Heavenly Father more? as you reveal that which the Father entrusted to the Son, that which the Son has entrusted to you, that which you teach us. May we grow in our love for God and in our witness and our testimony for Him on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning with the singing of a relatively new hymn. I think we have sung it once or twice at Honey Ridge before. It's a song by Stuart Townend and Keith Getty. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. I pray that as we close the service with this song, it will be the prayer of our hearts, not just today, but particularly as we go into these next eight weeks of studying the person and the the work of the Holy Spirit together, that, that these truths would truly come alive in our hearts as God's people here at Honeyrich. May the Lord bless you in this week ahead. Amen.